We're talking to John Passa, author of Yogi, Life Behind the Mask, about Yogi Bear. Uh, and I have to say, I, the first thing when, I'm, when I finish reading your book, or actually during the book, John, is I feel like I owe Yogi Bear an apology because I never thought he was that good. Like, I mean, I thought he was great, like an all-time great Yankee. But when Derek right. Jeter, when they're talking about the Manuel DiMaggio youth and Garrigan, and they say, who's going to be on the top five? You know, they call it Mount Rushmore, whatever they want to describe it as a top five. I said, well, Jeter should be in that top five. And I put him, I just bumped Yogi off. And after reading your book, I'm like, I think that was a mistake. So, I mean, thanks a lot for coming on I Run Sports and, and writing about a person that's sort of a little forgotten. Um, thanks, Ira. It's great to be here. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I saw Yogi, uh, I'll be 68, and I saw Yogi starting in 1960 when he was a, a good role player. And my father, whose favorite player was Yogi, um, just told me about this incredibly dynamic player who dominated the, you know, into the second half of the 1950s and was the best player on the team that he saw win five straight World Series titles. Um, and going back and looking at it, it's, um, you know, it's the end of DiMaggio's career. So as famous and great as Joe DiMaggio is, um, you, you forget that the last three years he wasn't nearly the player he was for most of his career. Um, and it was the beginning of Mickey Mantle's career. I mean, Mantle really didn't hit his stride until like 55 and 56 was the big year. And Yogi was 20-plus home runs, 100 RBIs, 290 to 320, never strikes out. I struck out an average of 26 times a year and, um, and just unbelievably dynamic in the clutch. And he was the best player on that team. And, yeah, I think that absolutely gets overlooked. I mean, if you look at from 47 to 61, his 15 main years, nine World Series titles. The, they won three other pennants where they lost in Game 7 of the World Series and some of the most the Bill Mazeroski game, the Dodgers. You know, right. Three of the classic games in the history of sports, but nine World Series titles, three Game 7 losses, and three times they didn't win the pennant. And then look at his, from 49 to 56, you think I'm talking about Mike Trout here. Three MVPs, two second-place finishes, a third and a fourth in seven years. I mean, that's Mike Trout level. I mean, he was the dominant player in the game for seven years, the best player. I mean, there's Stan Musial, and then there's Ted Williams, but it was really the end of Ted Williams' career, but he was he this these stats are just amazing are off the charts and you don't think of yogi that way uh, i mean his his average especially in that time um is better than stan musial's and everyone thinks and should think that stan musial was a phenomenal hitter but that's how good yogi was and people don't realize and i think one of the reasons too is that he was made out to be such a character and he was a very interesting guy not quite the character that he was portrayed, and I think that um, overshadowed his accomplishments as well, especially when you think of people who've only seen him in the last 25 years of his life. He lived to be 90. And, you know, it was the funny guy that, you know, cranked out books, um, called, you know, called the Zen Master, and he was on great commercials like the Affleck commercial and the Miller commercial, um, and you kind of forget about him as a baseball player. And it was interesting to know he grew up in St. Louis, very in a middle, working class Italian neighborhood called The Hill. And all he wanted to do was play baseball his whole life. And, and he stopped He stopped going to school at eighth grade. He had an eighth education up to eighth grade. But he actually became one of the most intelligent players. If you, sit, if you follow him in this book about negotiations, so as much as he didn't have the formal education, he was very smart in, in how to negotiate and do everything. But just the, the, inner, the background that he grew up with and just his love of baseball comes through in your book. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, the things that were important to Yogi, he was really smart about. Baseball, genius level. Um, movies, he loved movies, and he would give movie reviews in the clubhouse. 
So much so that when he was a coach at the end with the with, with the Astros, he did a commercial thing about reviewing movies. Yogi at the movies, thirteen uh, thirteen episodes um, for each season, and they're hysterical. I mean, they're just they're just great. And um, you know, he. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the thread of the question. I apologize. Just about his growing up in terms of the the love of baseball that he had, and oh yeah, so yeah, I mean, the things that Yogi was smart about were were um, definitely. Business things. Him and Carmen formed a terrific team, and Yogi had a great sense of what he was worth, both to the Yankees and later on to advertisers. Um, and he w- loved baseball, and he loved movies. Um, other things really didn't interest him that much. But you know, you're, you're describing what most people, especially in their twenties and they're great athletes, is like. I was a phenomenal sportsman. I knew everything about sports. The rest of the world, not so much. <laughs> you know, and, and that's when he became famous. You know, when you go, I mean, God, wouldn't we all have loved to have played baseball for the New York Yankees in your 20s, starting life, making a lot of money? I mean, that's that's a great life. But he was so people just did not from what he looked. He was five foot eight, 180 pounds, small and his stature and sort of portly, not in great shape. And people just couldn't believe he could play baseball. I mean, Branch Rickey saw him when he was like 14, 15 years old and laughed at him and didn't sign him even for $500. And even when the Yankees did sign him, when he finally went in to the owner's office, the owner was like, why are you even here? Who are you? Like people, and you told that great story about when he went, he showed up at Yankee Stadium and he was working with the, with the, uh, for the, uh, mil- in the military for the uh, military team and there was for the football and they thought he was the equipment manager and he's going to be, oh, you'll be here for Yankees for the equipment. He goes, no, next year I'll be playing baseball for the Yankees and everybody laughed at him. So it was just how he overcame just the fact that people looked at him and thought he was funny looking almost. You know, what, what that really is testament to is the incredible confidence Yogi had in his athletic ability and his athletic ability was off the charts. To look at him, you'd never know that he was a, he was a great athlete. I mean, it looked like he was put together with spare good parts, but, but they were you know, long arms, long trunks, short legs, heavy shoulders, no neck, large head. Um, I mean, he didn't look like your prototype athlete, like his best friend and cross the street neighbor, Joe Garagiola, who at 15 was already like 6'1", 175 pounds, and he looked like the prototype athlete. I mean, Yogi, Yogi didn't. The one thing I'll say is we remember Yogi being maybe a little portly at the end of his career, but in the 50s? guy was you know solid muscle and he had to be to catch 148 149 games a year 2022 double headers a year i mean the guy was just an unbelievable off the charts athlete and that really does get overlooked and he was an american war hero because he was on the invasion of normandy he was on a rocket boat going to utah beach i mean he was sitting in america safe and sound and says look i want to go on a rocket boat and he and he was there right when they on the actual invasion of normandy and i loved in your book i know we're talking you know this time with the pandemic and with baseball issues but you really spent some good time talking about in the book about World War II because he his right when he was he was signed by the Yankees, but then he went to fight in the battles and the war, and then he came back. But talk you talked about how Kenneth Mountain Landis had talked to Franklin Roosevelt and said, "What should we do about baseball? We just you know the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. We're now in a war. What we do?" And you talked about how baseball was played during that period of time uh, when when we're in the middle of World War. Yeah, I think Roosevelt was really smart. He knew that this was going to be hard. I mean, he had to lead America into war. America, you know, America didn't want to go to war and actually stayed out for a while. One of the reasons I think that Yogi was able to play that, that first season uh, when he was eligible for the draft and he, and he wasn't drafted. Um, but it is, uh, you know, 
he goes, um, he, he gets drafted, he goes into the Navy, uh, and the Navy is based in Norfolk, where he also played minor league ball, and they ask him, they ask people who want to volunteer for a secret mission, you can't even tell your parents where you're going or what you're doing, and Yogi instantly volunteers. Um, more, I think, out of, the, uh, out of boredom, because just sitting around just drove Yogi crazy. And uh, it turns out he's on these uh, rocket launcher boats. They're all 36 feet long, and they're literally the first things that hit the beach at Normandy. I mean, they're 300 uh, feet offshore shooting their rockets into uh, machine gun nests so the troops had a sh- chance at storming the beaches. And that's what Yogi was doing. Um, he later gets, he spends 13 months in combat, later gets hit in the hand, thankfully for him and for us. Uh, it didn't wreck his baseball career. Uh, gets the Purple Heart, but waits until he gets back to New London, Connecticut, uh, and, and out of uh, combat duty before he puts in for because he doesn't want to worry his mother in St. Louis. You know, it's interesting also, I mean, you spend a lot of the books talking about his Italian heritage and, and because that's what they were in terms of him and, and, and he was close with the Italian. The Yankees were one of the teams that, that actually signed like Rizzuto and himself in terms of the Italians. But I was amazed that DiMaggio, during when the war started, because the Italians were on the side of, of the Germans, that he was actually getting booed at Yankee Stadium uh, for being Italian when the year before he was the MVP, everybody loved him. And I, I was shocked when you, when you described that in the book. Well, there was one of the things that surprised me was the um, discrimination uh, faced by uh, Italians in this country in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, really into the 60s. And, um, you know, he, he was certainly uh, part of that. I mean, they, we all know that Japanese-Americans were in internment camps and never should have been there. Um, but there were about, you know, 5,000 Italians that were put in internment camps as well. Um, Yogi's home on the hill was searched by the FBI for um, people who were uh, sympathizers to Mussolini, which no, none of the people on the hill were. Um, DiMaggio, uh, the, the year before, is his 56-game hitting streak, and everybody loves Joe DiMaggio. And the next year, he doesn't volunteer for, uh, to go to war. He's got a, a one-year-old, and people who have kids didn't have to uh, volunteer uh, or, I mean, sign up. And he got booed for that. And I'm sure that being Italian and not going in was a big part of the booing. And what a shock to go from being the most admired baseball player in the game to being booed at your own stadium. No, it's it's <laughs> totally amazing. But when he came back and then he was called, I love I loved your 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 story about when Mel Ott of the Giants saw Yogi play in, in a in a military game or something like that, and then he went to the Yankee owner or went to the Giants owner to say, "Look, we got to hire sign this guy." But he's with the Yankees, and they and they went up to the Yankee owner and said, "Here, I want to give you fifty thousand for Yogi Bear." And the Yankee owner's like, "I have no idea." Who he is. He's like, "I don't know who he is, but uh, we'll check." And then and then when he realized that, well, if Mel Ott wants to give me. 50,000 for him. He must be pretty good. He finds out like he's in the low-level ball of the Yankees, and then he called his people and said, we got to bring him up here if Mel Ott thinks he's so good. Yeah, and then when he walks into the room, um, McPhail, uh, who was you know one of three uh, of the Yankees, looks at him and says, um, like everybody else who first looks at Yogi going, this is an athlete? This is when <laughs> I turned $50,000 back in, 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 in 1946 was a lot of money. And uh, so, yeah, he was kind of shocked, but he would later tell a story um, laughing because Yogi ended up becoming a, a great player. And, but he, I think he was serious when he first took a look at him, like everybody else who, you know, underestimates Yogi when they look at him. And then as soon as he gets on the field, 
um, there's a story in the book that I that I absolutely love that, that was told to me by Red Shandings, who ends up being a Hall of Fame second baseman. And I talked to him in his later years as a coach of the, of the Cardinals. And he told me that he went to a tryout camp, uh, thousands of kids. It comes down to him, Yogi, um, Joe Garagiola, and through five other guys that he doesn't remember. And he says, uh, you know, it was his turn to pitch, and he's pitching to Yogi. And he's 18, Yogi is 16. Um, and... Uh, uh, Red said, you know, I had a really good arm. I could Not only could I not get the ball past him, but the sound that the ball made when it hit the bat was something <laughs> I'd never heard before. And he goes, this is the best player I've ever seen. And Brent Ricky decided it wasn't and didn't sign him. <laughs> We're talking to Joe Pass, the author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. Uh, the, the definitive, it seems like, biography of, of Yogi Berra must read. It's a great, easy read and just, is just, just enjoyable. It's like I loved your writing style and just it was wonderful to read the book. Um, so he comes up to the Yankees in his first year and he, everyone knows he can hit and he's hitting well and he's hitting great, but he was a poor catcher and the pitchers didn't want him to catch anymore. They want him to play in the field because he didn't know what he was doing. He's uh, fumble. He's been having pass balls. He can't throw any of the, of the, he can't throw anybody stealing bases out. And so that he was just known more as a hitter and not, uh, not a great catcher. Yeah, you know, I knew going in that, you know, Bill Dickey turned him into a good catcher. That, that's well known. What I didn't know was that he was so bad that at the end of the 48 season, which is his second year in baseball, I mean, he's hitting 15, 20 home runs, you know, knocking in 100 runs. So this kid's going to play. But when he was a catcher, you know, the pitchers just complained constantly. And when he played in the outfield, he hit better and the team uh, played better. So when the 48 season ends, um, Yogi Berra is the right fielder in 1949, except they fire the manager and bring in Casey Stengel. And Stengel goes, you know, if I got a catcher that can hit, and in those days catchers didn't hit at all. Their job was to play defense and call the game, and that was really important. Uh, but he said, you know, if I got a catcher who can do both, then I've got something special and, I'm, and I have a better chance of winning. So he brings Bill Dickey in, and Dickey works with him two hours every day after practice, um, and at the end of the uh, spring training, says that Yogi isn't just going to be a good catcher; he'll be the best catcher in baseball. Yeah, you and really, you really spell that he was right. You really spell how Dickey worked with him. I mean, Bill Dickey is a Hall of Fame catcher in his own right for the for the Yankees and with the Ruth and Gary Yankees. And a great and a great fielder, right? And uh, and, and, that, and that was the key. And um, yeah, he was. Um, you know, the, the Yogi did a lot of small mechanical things wrong that was that made him a terrible catcher, and actually blocked one of his strengths. With Yogi has had an incredible memory, and he could remember, you know, how you how they got a batter out three years ago, what the count was, and how many people were on base. And I'm not joking. And you know, if you can do that, you know, that's like gold for a pitcher. But it, but because he couldn't catch the ball, because he couldn't throw the ball, because he couldn't frame the pitches. Not only couldn't he frame the pitch, but he used to take a strike and he would stab at the ball. So he took a strike, and the umpire would call ball because of where the mitt landed. <laughs> And the opposite of what a catcher is supposed to do. Dickey corrected all of those mechanical. He saw that it was, everything here was mechanical and that Yogi had the agility and the speed and the arm strength and the smarts to be a great catcher. And once he did, fixed all the mechanical things, all of a sudden we had the best catcher in baseball on our hands. 
and one of the best hitters. And that's why he kept winning all those MVPs. I mean, and it was, right. it, and what I loved in your book was you talked about because he kept winning the World Series and he was the key component. I mean, another thing we have to realize is that, as you mentioned earlier, he was at the tail end of DiMaggio's career in the beginning of Mantle. So he was the star of the team. And, and even though DiMaggio may, had, but even they said that he was a bigger star than DiMaggio at the time, more popular. DiMaggio was more reserved. But Yogi was the man of the people. Everybody loved him. But you talked about how every year he had to go get his contract. And it was like this whole thing where he's, and he even, he even held out some years and he just, and, we're, years. Yeah, and we're talking yeah. about like making between 16,000 and 18,000 and he kept working his way up. And I love to tell you in the book, you mentioned how much, and then at times when he was earning like the eight, seven and 8,000, when his World Series share is 5,000, that's a big deal. Like when we we'll talk about World Series shares, you know, LeBron James for the NBA finals isn't making uh, five, $10 million for winning the NBA finals. It just, this was a significant amount of money for him to win that World Series. Well, now you know why everybody in baseball wants to play for the New York Yankees. <laughs> they doubled. I mean, Yogi doubled his salary in, by by winning the, the team winning the, the uh, World Series in 1947. And literally doubled his salary. Actually, the baseball the World Series check was bigger than his uh, salary for the year. And and really in America, I mean, he made five thousand dollars a year at 21. He was doing a lot better than most 21 year olds, but not like it is today. I mean, there were no, there's no, there was no such thing as free agency. You were tied to the team, and the only thing that you could do if you wanted more money was not to report and threaten not to play. And then it was a game of chicken. And Yogi won the game of chicken two years in a row uh, on holdouts. And you're right, he was the most popular player on the team. Um, always in demand as a speaker. Uh, the, the fans loved him, so he had that going for him. They didn't resent him asking for money, they thought he deserved uh, the money that he was asking for. And so the Yankees eventually just kind of like gave it up and negotiated with him, and they both walked out happy that one, I didn't have a, uh, an unhappy um, uh, walkout on my hands, and two, Yogi was happy with the money he got. And I loved your stories with Frank Scott, and this is back in the, in the 1950s, when he understood, when he went to, when Frank Scott said, hey, did something for me, he says, here, I got all these watches. And he goes, what are you doing with these watches? I, oh, I got the watches because uh, uh, every time I speak somewhere, they give me a watch. And Frank's like, whoa, you got you to gotta make some more money off your name. And just talk about how he was able to, with the YooHoo drink and, and the speaking and the bowling alley, I mean, his investments in the business side. So far, I mean, we talk about LeBron being this LeBron Inc. I mean, Yogi was Yogi Inc. way before that, yeah. LeBron. Yeah, well before that. In fact, you could argue because of the way the country and the media were concentrated that Yogi, you know, had a higher profile across the board with everyone um, than LeBron James has. And, and that's saying a lot. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's one story that I think puts it absolutely into perspective. 1962, Yogi's now, you know, been around since 1947, 15-year veteran. He's not the best player on the team anymore, but he's still by far the most popular player on the team. And this, this legendary ad man um, has the account for Quaker Oats for Puss in Boots cat food. <laughs> and the, the people who own the uh, Quaker Oats own it, and they tell this guy, um, listen, the only thing we're going to tell you is women buy cat food. So he comes back with a, with a campaign of the cat jumping around, working out in, in, in a gym, and then talking to Yogi Berra. And the people are, are stunned. They didn't dislike the concept of the jumping, you know, of the exercising cat, but we told you, cat, you know, women buy cat food. And uh, Lois told them, don't worry, every, all your wives know who Yogi Berra is. <laughs> and he did focus groups of 200 women, um, you know, like a dozen at a time. 80% of them not only knew Yogi, but uh, rated him highly trusted. 
Uh, and this is a baseball player that 80% of the women knew so well that they would trust what he said to go out and buy. That's yeah. the kind of popularity, that's the kind of, that's the kind of impact that he had on the country in the, in the 50s and the 60s. And then you mentioned how people, he came up of age when television was coming. And you mentioned the World Series in 1952 against the Dodgers. And it seems like, or actually against the, the World Series over the Giants, uh, 93 million people watched it. I mean, how many people were in America in that 1952 that it was just so popular that he was on TV. It was the first time people got TVs and it was mass produced. And so he became, he was in everyone's living room and baseball was the game. There was no, there was no NFL wasn't big. There was no NBA. It was just baseball at that time. Yeah, there was, I mean, if you were into sports, your sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball. And baseball, by far, was the most legitimate of all, of all three of them and the most beloved and ingrained into the society. In fact, that's one of the ways, I mean, Yogi comes from a class of people who, you know, wanted to assimilate into America, and Italians had trouble um, assimilating into America, and baseball was one of the ways they did it. I mean, DiMaggio always felt that burden, and it also fell to Phil Rizzuto and, and, and Yogi Berra, to be, you know, almost role models that, you know, people start, uh, the discrimination of Italians started to dissipate. And I think sports and those people and Yogi in particular is a big reason uh, for that. I mean, he was part of just the fabric of the history of baseball. I mean, the Don Larson perfect game that he was involved in. You mentioned in 1947 where he was almost pitched when he first came in the league in the World Series. He felt he made the mistake that cost one of the pitchers a no-hitter. And then he had the chance to coach to, uh, to catch Don Larson's perfect game in 1962. Or 1956, I mean. Wait. I'll tell you, one of the things that's really interesting is watching, other, watching ball players react to other ball players. And ball players, you know, look at Hall of Famers. I mean, now you're talking, you know, star ball players who are the best of the best are now looking at the very best of the best, and those people to them walk on water. And and when and when Yogi would walk, I mean, it's, he's like walking history. He's, not only did he dominate the game, but he played with DiMaggio. He played with Mantle. He saw Mantle, you know, before he got hurt about what an astonishing talent and this 19-year-old was before he shattered his knee in the 51 World Series. Um, he just, uh, you know, he you know lives through a depression, lives lives through war, grows up on television, as you were saying. I mean, TV. You know, I'm a baby boomer, so I was the first generation brought up with television. It grew up in my era, and the people I watched were Yogi. He was on every variety show: the Jackie Gleason show, the Phil Silver show, the Perry Como show, um, all the, uh, of course, Ed Sullivan show. And uh, on the game shows of the time, what's my line? And he was just always in front of people, doing a lot of commercials. And uh, yeah, I mean, his fame was—he um, was about as famous as, as anyone, any American in the 1950s. You know, so he finished with with 358 home runs, 1,435 RBIs. 2,148 hits. I mean, he's catching, as you mentioned, some years he's catching 145, 150 games. He coached, he catched, even when he was in his late 30s, like 22 innings of an extra inning game. Just amazing. I, again, the, back to one of the first question I had is like, why, why did you, why did when we looked at Jeter, is it just the prisoner of the moment? Did we put Jeter above him when really he, Jeter is no way even close to Yogi Bear? I don't know that Jeter puts uh, Jeter in front of <laughs> Yogi, uh, in, him in front of Yogi. Um, yeah, I think it's a function of time. I mean, my kids, who are now in their 30s, grew up watching Derek Jeter. 
and and watch the Yankees win four of, of five championships, uh, you know, and almost won a couple. You know, came really close, like in, in the seventh inning of the the seventh game of the. Uh, Nineteen in the seventh game of the World Series against Arizona of winning another one. So I mean, Derek Jeter was as good, if not the best player on those teams. So you you know you tend to think of it, but think about this. I mean, one of the reasons that we think Jeter is so good was because he won five uh, World Series, and Yogi Berra won ten World Series. <laughs> I mean, that's almost inconceivable that that you know you would be. And and again, for most of that time, he was the best player on the team. Well, that's what we're, we're watching the last dance with the, with Jordan. He won six. I mean, that's the other thing. Jordan wins six. We have Tom Brady winning. You know, it's just six. It's just again, it's just amazing how what we look in terms of the ten. When and really nine, he was a significant contributor for nine of those World Series. Just it's in, right. it's incomprehensible almost to believe it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the only athlete you can compare him on that level with is is um, Bill Russell, right? Who who had who had eleven, and then there's Yogi at ten. Um, I mean, there's some great, great players up there that have, you know, like the Maggio um, with eight, um, and Gehrig, I think, has seven. Uh, you know, but we're talking about the best. I mean, we're talking about Mount Rushmore. And that's the thing about playing for the New York Yankees. So what is the Yankees' Mount, Mount Rushmore? You know, it's got to be uh, Gehrig, Ruth, the Maggio. And, you know, before I started doing this book, I was, I mean, Mantle was absolutely fixed as the guy there, and now I look at it and I go, you know what? He's part of the reason Mickey Mantle is, is there because of what he could have been, not as much as what he ended up being. I mean, you know, some of the seasons he had were absolutely astonishing, and you got a glimpse of that ridiculous talent. But Yogi did it year in and year out, and Mickey didn't. I appreciate you coming on the on the show on Iron Sports, and I really appreciate you coming on our show today. Oh, I had a pleasure. Um, Barnes and Noble is probably the only place you're going to be able to find the book right now. Amazon said May 5th because they sold out the first day they had it, which I guess is a really nice thing. And I think people are just dying to um, just dying for baseball. You know, I mean, it's such a void. I know it is for me. So, uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why people um, have been buying this book. Thanks a lot, John.